Good morning once again, church. We want to welcome you to this Sunday service, December 20th. December 20th, we're just a few days removed from um, Christmas, December 25th. And I hope that you are just excited overall about uh, this season, about this time, and looking forward to spending uh, time with your loved ones, with your friends. Let's go ahead and and bow our hearts, and we'll pray to the Lord before we open back up the Word of God and and continue our study. Father, we thank you. Our hearts are burning for Christ. I'm thankful to you that we can proclaim the news again and again that angels proclaimed once um, that Christ is born to us, that King The long-awaited, the long-promised king is now here, and he is with us, and he is for us. What an amazing truth. And as we open up your word this morning, we pray that you would um, once again uh, allow us to to understand who Christ is. Allow us to to once again behold the, the true identity of Christ. Many people They have uh, their own idea, their own concept of who Christ is. And we need to come to scripture and we need to be refined in our thinking and in our our understanding so that we can properly worship this king. We can properly worship our Lord. He is the son of God. He is the son of man because he came here in order to accomplish a mission which only uh, this person can do. And Lord, help us as we analyze this text and as a response to fall on our knees and to worship Jesus. Bless our hearts. Open up your truth. Bless me also to be clear with your word. And would you just excite in us a a worshipful response? We ask for your glory. Amen. Have you ever asked yourself, what would be different if Jesus had never been born? Perhaps you had a time when you sat down and you pondered this question. Pastor Sam Crabtree asked that question some years back and gave his congregation in Minneapolis a list of things which would not be had Jesus not been born approximately 2,000 years ago kind of edited this list, and I want to share some things with you this morning to consider. If Jesus had not been born, this would not be the year of our Lord 2020. We would never hear a Christmas carol, and there would be no Christmas plays. We would have never heard of William Tyndale, John Wycliffe, John Knox, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, John Hoos, Billy Graham, Elizabeth Elliot, Amy Carmichael, Corey Ten Boone, Fanny Crosby, Lottie Moon, C.S. Lewis, J.R. Packer, John MacArthur, John Piper, and many others. There would be no organization such as Gideon and Good Samaritan, the Red Cross, the Salvation Army, theological seminaries or universities such as Princeton, Harvard, Yale, Purdue, and many others. 
We would have no such movies like Ben-Hur, The Cross and the Switchblade, Chariots of Fire, Narnia, The Passion of the Christ, Christ, The Nativity, and many others. The pilgrims who came to this continent in search of freedom to worship God according to their consciences would not have come. The Indians of Ecuador who killed Jim Elliott and his crew of missionaries would still kill white men and one another. The Indians of the Caribbeans would still be cannibals. Prophecies would remain unfulfilled. The serpent would not be crushed. We would not be delivered. Death would not be conquered. And God would be a liar. The entire New Testament would never have been written. There would be no mediator between God and men. For the man Christ Jesus would not have been born. We would still be dead in our trespasses and sins. Quite a reality, isn't it? Aren't we glad that this is not so, brothers and sisters? The, the Christmas story is a very simple story, yet it is unlike any other story in history. The twist and turns, the confusion and, and the revelations, the human and the divine all come together in one major event, which forever altered history. Christmas story is a story of the father's love. It is the story of the son's submission. And it is the story of the spirit's creation. I want to invite you to turn back to Matthew chapter one. Matthew chapter one, we will begin reading with verse 16 and we'll read through the end of this chapter as we continue our study that we started two weeks ago. Matthew chapter one, verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations of Abraham to David are 14 generations from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations and from deportation to Babylon, to Messiah, 14 generations. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, since she was found to be with the child by the Holy Spirit, and Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who had been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did 
as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Very familiar passage, very familiar story, familiar characters here. But as we consider these last verses of chapter one, I want us to think of this central theme that, that Matthew unpacks for us in these verses. And it is this, because Jesus is both the son of man and the son of God. He is uniquely qualified to address man's greatest enemy, sin. Because Jesus is both the son of man and the son of God, he is uniquely qualified. No one else can fit the bill except for this one man to address men's greatest need, which is to deal with their sin. And as we study these verses, I want us to consider three truths about our Lord Jesus Christ as we unpack this theme. Number one, Jesus is the son of man proved by his natural birth. Number two, Jesus is the son of God proved by his divine conception. And number three, Jesus was divinely conceived and naturally birthed to be our savior. Very simple three truths here. Number one, Jesus is the son of God proved by his natural birth. As we studied two weeks ago, Matthew begins his gospel by tracing Jesus's family tree to prove that he is in fact the long awaited heir the Messiah who was promised to come in the old Testament. He is the promised King. He says the son of David, he is the promised seed, the son of Abraham. And in the first 17 verses, Matthew skips over many names, many generations. And, and he chooses rather to focus on key individuals in Jesus's family tree. And now beginning with verse 18, he zeroes in on this final man before Jesus, Joseph. And I want you to notice how Matthew is very careful how he speaks of this man, Joseph. While all the other men are referred to as the father of the father of look at the first 16 verses, right? The father of Joseph is never directly called the father of Jesus. Rather in verse 16, as we read, he is referred to as the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born which raises some obvious questions. And so in the rest of this chapter, Matthew then provides answers as to why this is so. Now thinking of Jesus or Joseph, rather, he is probably the most overlooked character in the Christmas drama. I mean, we talk about shepherds, we talk about wise men, we talk about Mary, we talk about Jesus, obviously, we talk about Herod, even more so than we talk about Joseph. You know, he never speaks in any of the accounts we have of Joseph. You never see his direct speech. He's only mentioned a few times in the entire New Testament. Yet his role is very crucial to the person of Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 20. According to this verse, he is the son of David. When angel addresses him, he says, Joseph, son of David. And this is vital to Christ's humanity. And God's promise to David to 
sit a king on his throne who will be there forever and ever as we looked at two weeks ago. And it is through the Joseph's line, not through Mary's line, that this kingly line is traced back to David. I mean, think about this. Think about this, that Jesus is the only Jew alive today who can actually prove his claim to the throne of David. He's the only Jew alive today who can actually trace back his lineage back to David. All the other records were destroyed when the Romans sacked Jerusalem in AD 70. The line ends with Jesus Christ. He's the only one that needs to be proven this fact. He is the Christ, the Messiah. He is the King who has come. Now being engaged to Mary, Joseph will become an adopted earthly father of Jesus Christ, as we will see at the end of this passage. And so beginning with verse 18, Matthew focuses on the birth of Jesus, the birth of Jesus. And this is very important. Why? Because he wants us to know, he wants us to understand that Jesus was actually birth. He took on a body. I mean, look at the language that he uses here in the first uh, few verses here. Look at verse 16. Jesus was born. Very clear language here. Look at verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 18 again. She was, Mary was found to be with a child. She was pregnant, which will result in birth. Verse 20, child conceived in her. Verse 21, she will bear a son. And verse 25, the fulfillment of it, she gave birth to a son. What is the point here? The point is that Jesus had a natural birth because he is the son of man. He took on a body for one unique purpose, which we will look at in just a little bit. But Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is coming into the world was nothing short of extraordinary. It's full of suspense. There's even a lot of controversy that surrounds his character because of who he is. And so in verse 18, Matthew records that Joseph and Mary are betrothed to one another, but haven't yet moved in together to live together. Now in first century, betrothal was different than the engagement period we are very familiar with today. Today, many engagements, they don't even last till marriage. Engagement is one of those things nowadays that people take very lightly and they can break off at any point. But back then betrothal was as binding as marriage. After entering into this betrothal, a period which usually lasted about a year or so, a legal divorce would be required in order to sever this relationship in order to break this bond. Even though the wife to be continued to live with her parents and the husband to be continue to prepare a place for them to move in together after this period expires. And so it is during this time of one year that as Joseph is busy preparing a place to take Mary into his house and to spend the rest of their time and their life together, that we read that he finds out that Mary is pregnant. And, and the text here seems to suggest that Mary did not tell Joseph 
the news about her pregnancy. We know from Luke 1 that by this time, Mary knows who she's carrying because Gabriel showed up and he told her that she was chosen to be the mother of the promised Messiah. And she was going to bring him into the world. The, the news that, that completely baffled Mary. Joseph, however, is, is uninformed and, and apparently becomes aware of her pregnancy when, when he sees the growing baby bump. It says, before they came together, she was found to be with a child. He's surprised. He's com- this is completely unexpected. He's confused. And we may even say that Joseph by this time is devastated because what he thinks happened did not happen. He doesn't know what we know. When we read verse 18 and Matthew front loads that for us and he says, she was pregnant, but she was pregnant of the Holy Spirit. When, when Joseph sees the baby bump, he does not know the details. So he's in a very real crisis situation. He fe- fe- feels utterly betrayed by his fiance. He's under this intense shame because apparently Mary had broken a vow. And so Joseph has few options here. According to Deuteronomy 22, he can publicly divorce her and to put her to open shame. And according to the same chapter here in the Old Testament, when someone did that, that usually resulted in stoning. Now, stoning by the time of Christ, by the first century, was rarely practiced. So it probably wouldn't happen. But nevertheless, he could go on with this and to prove his righteousness And to put Mary to open shame. Or according to Numbers 5, he can divorce her privately between before two witnesses without shaming her. And so look what Matthew does. Before he tells us what Joseph did, he tells us who Joseph was. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man. Being a righteous man. He was a just man. He was zealous in keeping the law of God. He would not commit sexual immorality himself, nor condone the fact that Mary apparently was immoral. He was righteous in regard to the law, but also look at this. He did not want to disgrace her. He was a compassionate man. He was a a kind man. And it is obvious that Joseph is just broken by this news. He knows that, that he was not involved and apparently Mary had proven to be unfaithful To him, yet notice Joseph does not respond in anger. He does not respond in vengeance. He doesn't want to pay her back. He is concerned for Mary. And although lawfully he has the right and the responsibility to charge her with a crime, he demonstrates that he loves this girl and that he does not want to put her to shame. So he so to speak, balances truth and grace, biblical conviction and and compassion. He can't continue on with this marriage because that would condone her sin and would impugn his character. So he decides to separate with her, call a divorce by signing a certificate of divorce between or before the two witnesses. And notice that this decision here would put his own integrity on the line before people. What Joseph here decides to do was not an easy thing to do. I mean, even today, 
No one appreciates a man who gets a girl pregnant and leaves her by herself and abandons responsibility completely. Yet Joseph would rather let Mary look innocent while looking guilty himself. This was his resolution. He says here, Matthew writes, he planned to send her away secretly, secretly. However, before Joseph goes through with this plan, God initiates a visit. The story is not over. Joseph must go through with this marriage because this is God's plan for him and Mary. But before we move on to the next point in our story, let's stop and let us consider what Matthew wants us to acknowledge here first and foremost, that Jesus Christ was born fully human, fully human. Yes, his birth is surrounded by controversy because of who he is. Joseph is confused. He's devastated. But one thing is clear from this account. Jesus Christ was a real baby undergoing the identical process that each one of us had undergone. Being developed in his mother's womb, which was so obvious to both Mary and Joseph as they were looking at this pregnancy. I I love what 4th century Bishop of Hippo, Augustine, said of this great mystery of God becoming man. He says this, he, Jesus, through whom time was made, was made in time. And he older by eternity that the world itself, than the world itself, was younger in age than many of his servants in the world. He was made man. He who was, he who made man rather, was made man. He was given existence by a mother whom he brought into existence. He was carried in hands which he formed. He nursed at the breast which he filled. He cried like a babe in the manger in speechless infancy. This ward without which human eloquence is speechless. The fifth century reformer, Martin Luther, he says this, the mystery of the humanity of Christ, that he sank himself into our flesh, is beyond all human understanding. God became a human. He took on a human body in order to be like us, in order to redeem us. The book of Hebrews tells us why Jesus being the son of man matters. Why his full humanity is of great importance to us believers. The humanity of Christ is crucial for few reasons. We'll look at some of these reasons um, at the very end, but I want you uh, to go to Hebrews chapter two. I want to read something here. One verse, Hebrews chapter two, verse 17, where the author of Hebrews tells us why why God, Jesus Christ, had to take on a human flesh and be like us. And and he writes in 2.17, he says, therefore, it wasn't optional for him. He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
he had to. It wasn't an option. He had to take on a body. And if you go to chapter four of Hebrews and, and, and re, you read verse 15, he continues this, this thought of Jesus being a high priest. And he says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who had been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Christian, what need do you have this morning? What, what comfort do you need from Christ today? Our glorious savior is sitting at the right hand of his father. And he is, according to this passage, sympathizes with our weaknesses. And he's praying for us. Jesus Christ in his body is praying for us. The fact that he took on our humanity allows him to know to feel, to understand our human experience. So then the author says in verse 16, therefore go now, go now to the throne of grace and go over and over and over again, because there is grace. There's endless grace in time of need. He knows how to help you. He hears our cries. You will find mercy and comfort because according to Matthew one, Jesus is the son of man being proved by his natural birth. I want us to look secondly that Jesus is the son of God, which is proved by his divine conception. Notice in verse 20, but verse 20, but I mean, this is huge. Although Joseph's plan to privately divorce Mary was the best solution in this difficult situation. It wasn't the solution that God sought for him. Joseph was missing key information. He needed divine explanation of facts to get on the same page with Mary to be on the same page with God. So God intervenes. And so while Joseph is devastated, an angel of the Lord shows up in the dream and he tells him something he does not expect. And he says this, Joseph, son of Mary, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. The child in Mary's womb is not a result of her being unfaithful to him, but it was actually the work of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, the angel says, this is a divine conception. It is unlike any other that happened prior to or since this conception. The baby boy, think about this church, the baby boy, the son found in Mary's womb is the very son of God who existed in eternity past. And notice what Joseph does in verses 24 and 25. After getting this revelation, he does as the angel of the Lord commands him to. This is enough for him. It seems as though he didn't even wait for the period of, of one year to end. He immediately takes Mary in reread. 
It says much for Joseph's faith that he went through with the wedding, regardless of what others might have thought of him. But in addition to that, according to verse 25, he had no sexual union with Mary, as we read, until she gave birth to Jesus. And then, look at verse 25. And then he called his name Jesus. Joseph legally names him, signifying a legal adoption, Jesus Christ into his family so that what was promised before long ago would be fulfilled in that Jesus Christ would be called the son of David because Joseph was the son of David. Now, one of the core doctrines of our faith, and some would argue that this is the doctrine upon which the very gospel rests is that Jesus was conceived not as a result of union of Mary and Joseph, but by this divine conception, the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. When the angel Gabriel first surprised Mary to announce this news, she was shocked and, and asked, how can this be since I'm only engaged to this man? I'm not even his wife and then the angel in Luke 135, remember, he tells her the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy child shall be called the son of God. And church, no further explanation is given because no further explanation is needed. We should not speculate how this happened. We should simply and humbly believe what the word of God says that the spirit of God placed the eternal Christ in human form inside of Mary's womb. And, and, and that blows your mind. You, you, you can't conceive of how this can be. There's a story that one day C.S. Lewis was sitting in his office in English department when a friend who was an unbeliever wandered in. There were carolers below in the courtyard singing Christmas carols. And, and as they were speaking, they, they could hear them singing. And, and the songs they were singing contained the words about Jesus's virgin birth. And his unbelieving friend said to C.S. Lewis, isn't it good that, that we now know better than they did? Uh, C.S. Lewis said, uh, what do you mean? Well, isn't it good that, that we now know more than they did? I'm afraid that, that you will have to explain, Lewis said. Well, isn't it good that we now know that virgins don't have babies? And C.S. Lewis looked at him in disbelief and said, uh, don't you think that they knew this? That is the whole point. <laughs> Church, that is the whole point. The virgin birth of the son of God is central to our very faith. Regardless of what your college professor might say, 
or what the liberal scholar might argue, the truth withstood countless attacks throughout church and will forever be true. In fact, Matthew goes back to the Old Testament to prove his point in verses 22 and 23. He quotes Isaiah 7:14, and he says, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with a child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And the point that he makes is that the idea of divine conception and ultimately the virgin birth is not a New Testament concept. It's been prophesied a long time ago. In fact, over 700 years before it took place, Isaiah wrote that there will be a time when the virgin shall conceive a child, a virgin with a child. How can this be possible? And this is when you simply throw your hands up in the air and say with men, things are impossible, but with God, All things are possible, but here's what I want to get to. Why does this truth matter, friend? You know why this matters? Because Jesus, as the son of God, is equal with God. He is God himself, and therefore, as God, he is worthy of praise and worship. He deserves to be worshiped. Look back at what Isaiah says about this child when when Matthew quotes for us, they shall call his name Emmanuel, And then Matthew translates the name to mean God with us. Literally, it says with us, God. Emmanuel means with us, God, the Lord of heaven and earth. Back in the Old Testament, we read in Genesis chapter two, he communed with Adam and Eve in the garden. But when he, when they sinned, what he, his presence left And years later, God instructed his chosen people to build a tabernacle, literally a tent when, when it was ready so that he could return with his presence. Then they built this massive temple, God's house, which was supposed to be a more permanent place for his presence. But not long after the nation sinned. And once again, God left the building and then comes Jesus and then comes Jesus. And he dwells with his people. John 1.18 says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who's in the bosom of the father, he has explained him. And and, and John earlier on in in verse 14, he uses the the same verb as the tent and the tabernacle. And he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt and tabernacled among us. God with us. And for the remainder of this gospel, Matthew will demonstrate to us that Jesus is indeed God with us, who's worthy of praise and worship. And the way he opens up this gospel in Matthew chapter one is the very same way he closes in Matthew 28, 20, where Jesus says, and lo, I am with you always. And even today, church, this God is with us in the church. He is within us by his spirit. And one day he will once again be physically present with us. And that's why we as a church, we cry out and say, come Lord Jesus, because we await your return. Brothers and sisters, these lofty doctrines aren't meant to be in our Bibles only or stored in our heads. They're meant to sink deep 
in our hearts and do something with us. And Christian, do you need to be reminded today that God is with you? Are you comforted in whatever situation you're in right now that the son of God is with you? The manger is the proof that this is true. The cross is the proof that God is with us. The resurrection and the empty tomb is a proof that God is with us. I love how Sovereign Grace Music, they composed this song a few years back entitled The Unbelievable. And, and the first stanza reads this, come and see the inconceivable and believe the unbelievable. God has come to dwell with us. Begotten son, born into Adam's earth, promised one, fulfilled ancient words. God has come to dwell with us. Church, Christmas is the proof that God is with us. Jesus is the son of man proved by his natural birth. He is also the son of God proved by his divine conception. But Matthew wants us to see, or the angel wants us to see, or even more precisely here, God wants us to see the ultimate reason why Jesus had to be both son of God and son of man. Jesus is not only God with us, but church, get this. Jesus is God for us. Which brings us to our last and final point. Jesus was divinely conceived and naturally birthed to be our savior. Jesus was divinely conceived and naturally birthed to be our savior. Earlier this week, uh, while I was scrolling through Twitter, I saw this tweet by one of the pastors, which read this pastor exclamation marks. Don't leave Jesus in the manger in his mother's arms. We're in the adoration of shepherds. Put him on the cross. Lay him in the grave. Bring him forth alive. Christmas is about the gospel. And I thought this is exactly what Matthew is telling us in his opening chapter. It is not about the manger. The manger is just a preview of something yet more humbling to come. Look what he says in, in, in verse 21, this is the proclamation of the gospel for us, church. She, the angel says, will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Brothers and sisters, church, Jesus did not come on some fool's errand. He came on purpose. He came for a purpose. He came to live and die in order to redeem his people. That is why he came. His very name proves it. It is not an exaggeration. He is Jesus. The angel says, you will call his name Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, which means the Lord is salvation. His name, the name of Jesus is completely justified by the facts of his ministry. He is called to be what he came to do. Spurgeon said that he once saw a grave of a child 
which had this in- inscription of a gravestone on the gravestone said this sacred to the memory of Methuselah Connie who died at six months. The infant had a name to which he did not live up to. Because if you remember, Methuselah lived 969 years. Friends, Jesus had a name to which he lived up to. Jesus was a name of his mission and our condition required this mission. Our condition, our evil condition required his mission because it says he will come and he will save his people from their sins. Notice, notice how, how Matthew writes this and, and how the angel proclaims. He, he doesn't say from the penalty of sin or from the judgment that is due because of their sins, but it's as if he it personifies sin Sin is your enemy. Sin enslaves you. It hounds you and you cannot escape its hold. Paul says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have broken God's law. Each of us is guilty before his holiness. We are in great need of a savior. And this Christ comes that we would be redeemed and that we would be rescued from our sin. Jesus was divinely conceived and naturally birthed to be our savior. Jesus is not only God with us, church, he is God for us. Consider this, that because Jesus took on humanity, he is uniquely qualified to identify with us. He is the only one who is qualified to, to live a perfect life. He being a man lived a perfect life in our place and became a sacrifice for sin. That's why he had to be a man because man had to fulfill the requirements of the law. And he is the first one to do it. And as a perfect man, he lays down his life, not for himself, but for others. And because Jesus is God, he is also uniquely capable of being an infinitely satisfying sacrifice for sin. I mean, think about this, that Jesus is able to suffer God's wrath for all the people who will be forever redeemed in a matter of hours. What you and I would each suffer for, for all eternity. Only God, only the son of God. He is the God man and no other option would have worked. If Jesus is not God, we have some serious problems and we are still in our sins. But if Jesus is not man, we have some serious problems and we are still in our sins. Bible commentator Adam Clark says, this shall be his great business in the world. The great errand on which he came to make an atonement for and to destroy sin. The perfection of the gospel system is not that it makes allowance for sin, but that it makes an atonement for it. And listen, not that it tolerates sin, but that it destroys it. The good news of the gospel is not that in Christ we can now sin. 
good news of the gospel that it is in Christ we are now freed from sin. Church, why this is really precisely why Matthew's gospel was written. He wants us to see the real mission why Jesus came so that we would believe and so that we would love and so that we would follow this Jesus. Many in those days expected the Messiah to be this political king. Jesus came and he brought a different type of kingdom. He's not some frustrated king who will not have any subjects. He came to live and to die in order to redeem the people who are to be his subjects in the everlasting kingdom. And right up front, Matthew wants you to know that this is the king. This is who I'm going to write about. So what are we to do now? We do nothing but believe. There's nothing left to be done but believe in the son of God and to be reconciled to the father by faith. We trust that Christ has done it all. We affirm by faith that Jesus is the son of God and that he is the son of man who came to save sinners. As we close, I want to once again address those of you who may be with us now, but are without Christ. Maybe you've heard the gospel news for the millionth time. Or maybe you're hearing this for the first time, having joined us. Friend, the solution is the same. Whether you heard it for a million times or you hear it for the very first time, Jesus came to save us from our sins. And as we'll study this gospel, we find out that he accomplished his mission. Everything he had to do, he fulfilled to the final degree. There's nothing left to be done, only to believe and repent and submit to Jesus Christ and worship him alone, as we read from Philippians chapter 2. Let this day, let this season bring you the ultimate joy of knowing your Savior. Now, for the rest of us, church, we rejoice. We rejoice. Why? Because we are people of this great God. That Jesus is our king. Jesus is, is with us. And, and don't ever forget this. He is for us. In times of need, run to the throne of grace in order to be comforted in him. Because, because he's not only the son of God but he is the son of man who knows and who understands us better than we understand ourselves. Father, we thank you for this word. Help us to worship Christ, we pray. Amen.